0: Uh Uh-oh. There it is. Welcome to the Tuesday Night Bible Study. Thank you all for being here, and thank you guys for being on Zoom and for watching this recording. We are in Matthew chapter 16. The backstory here is, obviously, Matthew is one of the four Gospels, biographies of the Lord Jesus' life, mostly in a a three, three three-and-a-half-year period where he ministered and did healing. Um, We are in chapter 16. We're going to pick it up around verse... 16, but we're going to go back to 13 just to give you the context. The broader context is Jesus has been ministering for a few years now, doing miracles. He he has great popularity and a huge following of people, many of which will fall away, but some of which will have and have already genuine faith. At this time already, a few chapters ago, the Jewish leaders representing all of Israel have rejected Soundly the Lord Jesus. They don't want him to be their savior. They don't like him. They're always antagonistic to them, to him. I mean, you'll see that come back in chapter 23 and elsewhere. But for now, he has gone to Gentile territory where he has ministered in the past, but he is now, um, Sort of on a sabbatical in a way. He's still ministering, but he's teaching his disciples because soon he won't be around. Little less than a year, he won't be around and they will take over the ministry. He has come in verse 13 to the region you'll see in your, uh, Bible there of Caesarea, Philippi. This is almost a Mecca, a central area for all, um, pagan religions you name it, they've got it there. There were at least 14 temples in that city where you could go religion shopping and find the one you like and worship there. He chooses this area to go and to ask the disciples, not a question, it's actually two questions. He goes to ask the disciples the question. I'll show you why in a second pick it up in verse uh, 13. So I know that you're awake. Say amen. 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 Okay, good. And those of you on Zoom, wave or say amen. Great. Okay. Amen from Zoom land. I see that sign. All right. Verse 13 of chapter 16 of Matthew, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, here it comes. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Son of Man is the favorite title, his favorite title for himself. It goes back to the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13, where there is a Son of Man who's clearly also the Son of God um, interacting with the Father. We won't go there now. We did that when we studied Daniel. So question number one is really an introductory question. The real question he's about to ask them is at the end of verse 15, where he says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? Do you see that? So first he wants, what's the public, what's the word on the street? Who do people say that I, the Son of Man is? Who do people say that I am? There's an answer that's missing here. But let's look at the ones that aren't missing. They replied Some say you're John the Baptist, others say you're Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Did you catch that? These people are all dead. Elijah went to heaven directly, didn't die, uh, but he's gone. Um, John the Baptist has been beheaded, and they ministered at the same time, and they're related. So the idea that he's John the Baptist kind of makes no sense, kind of silly. Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet uh, because he uh, was crying over, uh, lamenting over the state of religion in Israel. How bad it was, similar to Jesus. So when they, he asks, who do people say that he is, these are all pretty prominent people. So that's pretty good and they're all dead wrong, aren't they? He isn't any of those people. What, what's the opinion that's missing? I'm hoping there would be, well, 5% think you're the Messiah, the Son of God. It's not even mentioned, so it's 0.014 or something, right? Very small, that think he's who he, said, who he really is. Then comes verse 15, "What about you?" He asks, "Who do you say that I am?" The way the sentence is in Greek, it's it's worded just like that. "What about you?" The you is emphatic, the most important word in the sentence. "Who do you say that I am?" He's asking the 12 apostles. But may I say this is the question for every one of us and for unbelievers. It is the question that will determine whether someone goes to heaven or to hell. It's the question, not what's the stock market going to do? What should I eat to be more healthy? All the other, what should I do for my occupation? Where should I go to college? Where should we live? All important. This is the question. May I say, before we get into the answers, and there's many, may I say that you must have faith, I'm guessing, or you wouldn't be here, even though there is good faith. Treats back there on the table. And same with you on Zoom. There's better stuff on TV probably than this, but you answer, listen, that question, and so do I every day. Maybe not verbally, but in the decisions we make, the words we say, the things we think, the things we read and watch, the way we live our lives, we are answering that question every day. Because it's not possible to think He's the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God and believe that, and live a whole different way. It's, not, it's incongruous. It doesn't make sense. So first, let's get to the answers. So he asked them, who do you say that I am? I'd like to watch the videotape of this I- incident. When we get to heaven, I can ask. They have DVDs there. Because I, think, I don't think the answer was immediate. I think there was a pregnant silence there. Who do you say that I am? Peter who always speaks you know for the group sometimes with his foot in his mouth right he says you are the messiah or the christ same word christos in greek mashiach in hebrew it means the anointed one the promised coming messiah but he adds to it and he's right i say you are the messiah the christ the son of the living god do you see that he's about to get an a plus And then later in this chapter, he's about to get an F, just to warn you. Is that possible? Yes. Okay. Do you see the word living there? You're the son of God. No, it's the son of the living God. The Jews came up with that term. It's biblical to distinguish the living God, the one true God that there is, because that's all there is from all the dead gods, the idols, the, all the made-up gods. People have invented gods throughout the world. And so Peter confesses, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It's a beautiful thing. He's 100% right. This question, as I said, is the most important one there is. I want to just take a second. We don't do this very often, but I want to talk about all the wrong answers, because there's a lot. You're going to witness to people, who do you say that Jesus is? And you'll get, he was a great teacher. Is that true? Yes. But that's a far cry from who and what he really is, isn't it? Jesus, who is he? One of many great religious leaders. He's, he was an avatar a representation of God for that time. The Baha'i faith started in India, believes, I think there's, is it 12 or 14, manifestations of God throughout history. And they include, believe it or not, Adam, who didn't do so well, did he? Noah, Moses, Abraham, um, Muhammad, of course, they have to put him in, jesus and several others he's one of many great religious leaders Um, how about this one he was a miracle worker he was from another planet believe it or not ekin that's what they teach big in santa cruz where we're from he um was a was a there's people that believe this one jesus he was a spirit being His body wasn't real. It was an illusion. So who you say Jesus is, I mean, let's face it, C.S. Lewis wrote a book in which he did the four L's. Have you ever heard this? The only four possibilities. Jesus Christ, lunatic, legend, liar, Lord. You ever heard that? There's people that think he was crazy. He thought he was God. Yes, he did some cool things, and they ended up killing him, and he was crazy. Lunatic. You look at his life. I've read books about this. Um, I just lost his name. The Case for Faith, The Case for Christ. Lee Strobel, atheist attorney from Yale, wrote a book to to prove that Jesus wasn't God. Ends up becoming a Christian. He interviews psychologists who say, you read the life story of Jesus, there's no way this guy's crazy. There's no way. Nobody's ever had this kind of wisdom in human history. Lunatic, number two, legend. They made him up. You know, Santa Claus, hopefully there's no little children watching. Santa Claus, uh, the tooth fairy, he never really existed. They made him up. The problem is, If you destroy all the biblical documents that there are in the whole world, all the manuscripts, thousands, all the Bibles, just from historical documents of historians writing at the time of Christ and after, you can piece together the whole story of his life. There's no way that that's possible. There's no credible historian who believes he never existed. So we've got lunatic, we've got legend, but what about this one? Liar. He wasn't God, and he knew he wasn't God. He was like Jim Jones or David Koresh. He was a cult leader who knew he was deceiving people. The question is, why? For the money? Next chapter, we're going to have taxes due, and Jesus doesn't have any money. He's going to send Peter to the Sea of Galilee to get a coin. That's the next chapter. You have to come back next week for that. Actually, I think it's 18. Anyway, um, there's no way that Jesus is a lunatic, a legend, or a liar. He doesn't live his life that way. By the way, none of those things explain the miracles, do they? Which leaves us with the fourth L, Lord. He really existed. He wasn't crazy. He wasn't a liar. He was who he said he was. Yes, but Joe... Talk is cheap. Anybody can say they're anything, right? In our culture right now, if you say, if I say, I'm a woman, you have to call me she or her because that's the right thing to do. Saying something is one thing, proving it is another. And folks, not only the wisdom that he taught proves it, but his virgin birth. All the miracles from casting out demons, raising the dead, healing the sick, calming oceans and storms, rising from the dead, multiplying food. Do I need to go on? That all speaks to his deity as God and creator. So Jesus is the Messiah. I want you to know, notice that it doesn't say he's one of the Messiahs, plural one of the sons of God. He's the only begotten son of God. He's the only Messiah. John 14, verse 6 says um, that he's the only way. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life, all singular, the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to God except through me. Peter says, there's no other name given among men whereby, whereby we must be saved. Oh, you Christians, you're so narrow truth is narrow. Two plus three is five. There's a thousand, million, trillion wrong answers, one right answer. Let's move on, shall we? Most of you are asleep. All right. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah, son of Jonah. We'll come back to that for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Okay? There's a lot here I know you can already see, can't you? So he says, Simon, son of Jonah, his full name. Okay. You're blessed. The idea of blessedness in the Old Testament is that God has looked with great favor on you and treated you in such a great way that because of that, you are now joyous and happy. That's really what blessed are the poor in spirit, happy because God has favored them. He tells Peter, you get an A and you didn't think this up on your own. In fact, nobody told you that's flesh and blood. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. You say, good for Peter. That is so cool. Listen, insert your name here. What do you mean? I'm telling you the same is true for you. You believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God? I got news for you. You didn't figure that out on your own, and neither did I. Left to our own human devices without God drawing us, John 6:44. No man can come to me, says Jesus, unless the, the, the Father who sent me draws him. If that didn't happen, and God didn't make the light bulb go on in you and realize, make you realize, he's it. I'm out of other options. He is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You would have never believed it. So the same that's true of Peter... true of you you can't deduce this with logic and facts alone are they helpful yes that's what apologetics is all about the whole science of showing people proofs for christianity for the bible for jesus and what have you but he tells him that he's greatly blessed because god has revealed this to him before that at some point Wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood. That means you didn't get it from any human being. Flesh and blood's a a way of saying human beings, Old Testament. So it wasn't somebody else that told you or revealed it to you. And he's flesh and blood, so it means that you didn't get it on your own, Peter. My Father in heaven revealed it to you. I don't know if Peter knew that it was revealed from heaven. He might have been kind of shocked to hear that. But here's where it gets a little dicey verse 18 and i tell you that you are peter and on this rock i will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it i will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven then he ordered his disciple not to tell anyone he was the messiah if you don't have questions about that little section You are asleep and you're not paying attention. Okay, so you are, first of all, you're makarios, you're blessed. God has favored you. Simon bar Jonah, bar, the word bar means son of, okay? In Arabic, it's bin. Do you remember Osama bin Laden? Osama, the son of Laden, whoever that was. So he's Peter uh, bar Jonah, son of Jonah. You might say in America, he would be Peter Johnson, son of John, right? That won't be on the test, so don't worry. Um, <clears throat> so divine inspiration gives Peter the correct answer. He gets an A+. plus. He says he's blessed. Um, okay, first thing in verse 18. He just got done saying, God revealed that to you, God the Father. As he's done before, he says, but I say to you, and I tell you, after saying God said something in the, at the same level, he says, I tell you, because he is God in human flesh. I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. So we got to figure out what's the rock. Catholic doctrine, it's Peter. Jesus is going to build the church on Peter. He, Peter, is the first pope. Got a couple problems there, because the pope can't be married. Peter is married. Oh. The pope, when he speaks religiously, is infallible in Catholicism. What does that mean? Everything he says is right. He can't make a mistake. He won't make a mistake. He doesn't make mistakes. Peter makes mistakes all over the place, right? He's not the first pope. But if you read this in English, it kind of sounds like he's going to build the church on Peter. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. We'll get to the gates of Hades and all that. What's going on here? Okay, number one. How many know what a pun is? Jesus is making a pun on the name Peter. The name Peter is Petros. It's masculine with an O. Those of you that speak Italian or Spanish, it's masculine. What's a Petros? It's a rock. Okay. What kind of rock? A loose rock, a rock you could skip across a lake, a rock you could hold in your hand, can even be a pebble, a little rock. You are a little rock. In a sense, he's named him, renamed him, because his name is Simon. He's renamed him Peter. Remember the 1970s boxing movie? Rocky. Okay? He's anything but a rock, but he's, God's going to make him into a rock. Okay? So you are Petros, a rock. And upon this rock, Petra, female, different word, I will build my church. It's not Peter. Okay, what's a Petros again? Small rock. You can hold in your hand. What's a Petra? A a rock that you ever see on lots around coarse gold? There's lots that are all rock. It's a rock shelf. It's a mountain of rock. Totally different word. Feminine. Peter's not feminine. And it's a way, way, way bigger rock. It's a foundation. Okay, so we've eliminated Peter, but we still don't know what's the rock. There are two schools of thought, and they're so close, they could both be right. Idea number one, I'm going to play the role of Jesus. And I tell you, you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church. He's pointing to himself. The church I'm going to show you in scriptures is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone. That could be. But we're taking a liberty because we don't, doesn't say he pointed to himself. But what was just said, Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That confession that Jesus is the only way, the Messiah, Messiah, the Son of the living God, cre- co creator with God the Father, eternal in nature, you, that creation, That, uh, I'm sorry, that statement is the foundation he's going to build the church on. You see how they're so close? Is it him or is it the statement that he, the doctrine that he is the Christ, the son of the living God? I believe it's both. Okay. Um, But probably more that it's the doctrine. Let's see. By the way, the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons preach Jesus, right? Right? But you got to define your terms, because I could say, I think Abraham Lincoln was our greatest president, and you could say, tell me about Abraham Lincoln, and I could say, well, he always dressed in a rabbit costume, and he had an operatic woman's voice. You say, well, you got a different Abraham Lincoln than the one I know about. Which Jesus are they talking about? Jehovah's Witnesses. Jesus is Michael the archangel, the first creation of Father God, wait for it, and Mother God. That's actually Mormonism. But at Jehovah's Witnesses, he's Michael the archangel. Uh, Mormons, he is one of many children that God and Mother God had. Um, So there's all kinds of Jesus's out there. 1 Corinthians talks about this. So how do we know which Jesus from this book? And what other books? No other books. Mormons have three other holy so-called books. Jehovah's Witnesses have the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. What they say goes. They re- uh, inter- interpret and even retranslate certain words of the Bible to make it fit their doctrine. Okay, that's enough of the wrong stuff. Let's get to the right stuff. Um, let's talk about this stone thing for a second. Um, and the Old Testament, the Messiah, Psalm 118, is likened to a stone. G- uh, Isaiah eight twenty eight sixteen 16 as well. Jesus claims to be that stone. Now I want you to go to Acts chapter 4. Keep your finger in Matthew. These little detours keep you people awake, which is good. Go to Acts, so four books to the right, Acts chapter 4. Where exactly? I can't figure it out yet. Okay, verse 10. Look, pick it up in verse 8, Acts 4 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple that was healed and are asked how he was healed, verse 10, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. That this man stands before you healed, he—that's Jesus—is the stone the builders rejected, which has become the capstone. There's the verse coming up that I quoted earlier. Salvation's found in no one else. There's no other name given among heaven, uh, given under heaven. Sorry, given to men by which we must be saved. Now go even further. Go to First Peter. So that's way in the back. Easiest way is go to Revelation and take a left and go about six books to the left. First Peter, if you're not a page-turner, that's okay. We'll only be here a second. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. He's talking about Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, that's Jesus, what does he call him? The living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also like living stones, smaller ones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Then it talks about the precious chosen cornerstone. That's Christ. That's where the church, on which the church is built. Um, we could go on. Romans 9 talks about the stone uh, 1 Corinthians 10 talks about the rock in the wilderness that Moses struck, do you remember, and water came out. 1 Corinthians 10, 4 says, and that rock was Christ. All through the Bible, there's a metaphors for the Messiah and God the Father, by the way, that speak of a stone, of a rock, and what have you. Okay, I'm turning my page in notes, finally. So, I tell you that you're Peter on this rock, the, the confession that he is the Messiah, the son of God, on Jesus himself, I will build my church. Next phrase we need to discuss. This is the first place in the Bible where the word church appears. You might be surprised to learn the word church existed a thousand years before that. It was not a religious word. It just meant a group of people. You could say like, we're gonna have a tennis club or a chess club it's just a group of people that get together for some purpose. It became a religious word. Ecclesia is the word in Greek. I want you to notice, you may think, well, you know, I did some missionary work, and we built a church in Uganda, or we built this church here, or I built this church as one of the elders. Wrong. Who will build the church? Jesus says, I will build the church, right? So um, the doctrine of the church is important. It is not, it can never be Jesus and me. I believe in Jesus. I don't go to church. I don't like to hang around with other people. That's called a Lone Ranger Christian. It's a contradiction in terms. Hebrews chapter 10 says, don't, Pete, uh, Steve quoted it last Sunday, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together which is the habit of some don't do it. There were two people here Sunday who used to come to this Bible study. They may be watching on zoom and they hadn't been going to church. And they said, so we came to check it out. This is the first time we've been here. What verse do we hear? Don't forsake the assembling of your, I thought that was kind of cool. Okay. So it's Jesus's church. He will build it. It's built on a firm foundation on this rock. Um, Notice it's whose church? My church. Meaning what? Christ's. Not the pastors, not the denominations. It's his church. Speaking of denominations, these are man-made divisions. Okay? People split off and make their own little denomination over the dumbest, in my opinion, stuff for the most part. When you die and go to heaven... Don't ask, where's the Presbyterian neighborhood? I'd like to be with my peeps, you know. Where's the Baptist? Is there an Assembly of God neighborhood? I could, if I could get a condo there. Listen, none of that will exist in heaven. They have d- divided, Christians have, over things like church government, over, well, we like to do the uh, communion, the Eucharist, once a week. Well, we do it once a month. Well, we do it once a year. Okay, new deno- there's three denominations right there. All kinds of how we worship, and can women be pastors, and not biblical, by the way, all kinds of reasons people have divided, okay? If your church doesn't make this book the Bible, the key thing, the final court of arbitration for every question, you need to find a new church. Praise God, this church does, as far as I know, uh, does. Okay, Um, we already talked about that and that. Okay, Um, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. What the heck is that? Some translations have the gates of hell. Anybody have that? I think King James might have it. It's not hell. That's Gehenna. It's the word Hades. There's two words that mean the same thing. Hades is Greek. Sheol is Hebrew. What is that? It's the place where dead people's spirits go. You say, okay, that's kind of weird. It's Old Testament. Okay. That in the Old Testament, dead people went, when they died, their spirit, the body gets buried. Their spirit and soul goes to Hades, or if you're a Jew, Sheol. Got the picture? Whoops! And you await the end of the world and judgment in the Old Testament. Okay. Um, I don't want to turn there because I'll take too long on it. In Luke 16, Jesus tells a story, and it's not a parable; it's a story because parables don't have proper names. Luke 16, the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Do you remember the story? He tells a story about a guy named Lazarus who's very poor. He's very ill, sores on his body, He's very destitute and poor. And there's a rich guy. Lazarus, the poor guy, is a believer. The rich guy is not. Okay? And the rich guy never does anything for Lazarus. He just lives his life, comfort, and all that. They both die in the story in Luke 16. You can look it up when you go home. Don't, look, don't read it now. And they both die. And they both go to Hades. Keep in mind, the context of the story is before the cross. I'm going to tell you why half of Hades is empty now, just to confuse you more. In the story, the rich man, who is not a believer, goes to the bad part of Hades, where all the unbelievers are, awaiting judgment. He's already suffering in Luke 16, in flames, he says. The other guy goes to the good side of Hades called Abraham's bosom, where he's comforted. You got me? You you with me? Like two sides of this room. Well, I don't want to make it here and here because half of you would be going to hell. So we'll make it that section over there and this section over here. You with me? This is the good one. That's the bad one. In the story, the guy in hell sees across a great gulf, there's that beggar Lazarus and says, hey, still ordering the poor guy around, dip your finger in some water, help me out here. And what he's told is he can't cross over and neither can you. They're going to stay there and await judgment forever. Now, here's where it gets a little interesting. After the cross, the saved people, who do you mean? I mean, every Old Testament person that believed, Abraham, David, Joseph, whoever. All those people that were awaiting the Messiah, who believed in the Lord, wherever they lived, were taken by Jesus directly to heaven. So there's now no waiting room. If you die, Paul says in two places, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Not, you go to the waiting room, you wait till the end of the world, you hang out. It's nice, but they have couches and stuff and TVs and, uh, and snacks. You go instantly into the presence of God. You with me? Um, let's see. So he's talking about Hades here. Hades is a way of saying symbolically death because you don't get to Hades any other way, except you die. So what he's saying is, I'm going to build my church, And the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, sorry. What do you mean by the gates? The entranceway, which is what? I just said it. Death won't prevail against it. Okay, two things. Number one, gates of hell, gates of Hades also has the idea of the kingdom of Satan. Because because of Adam and Eve's sin, that's why there is a Hades and a hell eventually. Hell happens, that judgment at the end of the world. So he's saying that. Death itself and even the power of Satan will not prevail, listen, against the church. What does that mean? That means that whatever goes on on planet Earth, whatever apostasies occur, if people are burning down churches and shooting Christians and bombing churches, the church will exist till the end. Absolutely. But aren't there some apostasy apostasy things going on where churches are going off the deep end? Yes, but he's saying that I will make sure the true church exists to the end. That's number one. Number two, death will have no power over the church. First thing, it will never die. The church will never die. But number two, if anybody in the church, I won't point to anybody, I'll make it me. If I die, that it will not prevail against me. Death will not separate me from my Lord. I'll go absent from the body, present with the Lord. By the way, just a quick thing. God is a Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Man, who is not God, that's not what I'm saying, is also a Trinity. Physical body, spirit, soul. Soul is the personality, the the, um, mind, if you will, not the brain, the mind. Body, soul, spirit. At death, for man, there is a separation. If I drop dead right now, Um, my body will still be here. My soul and my spirit, by the time you rush up here, hopefully someone will, um, will already be in heaven with the Lord. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Paul's about to die, and he says in one of his, his epistles, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. So that's the end for Joe's physical life. My life goes on in heaven. At the second coming of the Lord Jesus, or the rapture, if you prefer that term, there's a little reunion. Jesus comes back, bringing with him all the souls who have departed. Okay? So if I've died by then, I'm coming back in the clouds with him, even though my body's buried over here on Highway 41 in that little cemetery. We have a plot there, my wife and I. The Bible says that if you happen to be at that cemetery At that moment, you'll see me come out of the grave and my spirit and soul go back in just like a hand in a glove. Okay, we digress. I'm getting a lot of these looks. Okay. (laughs) Anyway. um, Okay, so the grave is not going to um, have any effect on the church. In fact, Christians, it's a glorious thing for a Christian to die. It's awesome. It's a victory. The church will exist right up to the end. Satan would love to destroy the church. You know what this verse says? He'll never do it. Can't do it, and he never will be able to. I love it. Okay. (laughs) So, verse 19 I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. How many have heard of binding and loosing? Right? It goes back to the Old Testament. Rabbis talked about it. And there's a lot of bad doctrine in this verse. Can I just tell you? If you believe some of that bad doctrine, before you judge me and get mad at me, hear me out and listen to the scriptures. Number one. Uh, first of all, back to the Catholics. Who's the first Pope? Peter. I will give you the keys. In depictions, in art, and in statues that are carved, the Catholic Church, uh, one of the symbols they use is Peter with two keys. He's got the keys. That's why you've heard all the jokes, so this guy dies, and he goes to heaven, and St. Peter, the Apostle Peter, is there at the gates deciding, should I let Tom in, and Ken, and Janet, or not? Not biblical. Peter doesn't decide that. Okay. So who has the keys? What are they? What's going on here? Um, Peter's very important. Don't get me wrong. He's always listed first when they list the apostles. He's clearly the leader. He, in a sense, had the keys and opened the kingdom of God to the Jews in Acts 2, to the Gentiles in Acts 10. However, in Revelation 3, Jesus has the key of David. Keep your finger here and go to Revelation chapter 1, and we'll settle this right now. Who's got the keys? Because the keys symbolize what? Authority. If we walk by a house, you and I, and I say, what a nice house that is, and you go, got the keys. That means you have the authority to open the door or to lock the door, to let someone in or to keep someone out. Revelation chapter 1. John gets a vision of the risen Christ, verse 17, John, Revelation 1, 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid, I'm the first and the last, by the way, that's Old Testament, that's God the Father, so if Jesus isn't God, this is blasphemy, but he is, I'm the first and the last, I am the living one, I was dead, so this can't be God the Father, it's Jesus Christ. I was dead. Behold, I'm alive forever and ever. And Peter holds the keys of death and Hades. Is that what it says? Eh, wrong. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. The one who has the authority is Jesus Christ. He, though, gives to us the right to, listen carefully, declare what the Word of God says. Let me give you an example. Um, I meet Jesse, and we, I get to know him, and he says, I believe in Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and gives me his testimony. I get to know him. I see his life. I can tell Jesse, I can declare to him, based on the Word of God, because you believe in Jesus Christ and are following him as your Lord and Savior, you, Jesse, are going to heaven. I don't have the keys in terms of making that decision, because I like you, I'll let you in, But based on what the Bible says, you will go to heaven. On the other hand, Harold over here, who I'm making up over here, Harold tells me, no Jesus for me, no Bible, I don't believe any of that stuff. I can declare to Harold, based on the word of God, it's not up to me, but based on the word of God, if you don't have Jesus, what are the two verses we just quoted? He's the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way to heaven, no other name given among men. Harold, I love you. I don't want you to stay in this situation, but I got to be honest with you. Like a doctor would, if you've got something wrong, a good doctor will tell you, not keep it from you. Harold, if you continue the way you're going, if you were to die tonight, you would go to hell and be judged for your own sins. Because when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? You say, you don't exist. Eh, Wrong answer. So back to the text. I want you to understand this. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What's going on here with this? Okay. Um, the keys to the kingdom, meaning the true church, the kingdom of heaven, all of that, the doctrine of salvation, the authority to explain it and teach it. Okay. Um Well, I'm going to leave that for now. We'll come back to it. Okay, let's talk about binding and loosing. The Jews talked about binding. To loose meant to allow, to permit. Excuse me, Rabbi. Yes, what is it, my son? Um, Would it be okay to get drunk next Thursday? Okay, no, I'm going to bind that. Based on, not my decision, based on the word of God, it's a sin to get drunk. So I'm going to prohibit it. I'm going to bind it. I'm going to forbid it. On the other hand, do you think, Pastor, it would be okay for me to get married to this woman? Uh, Well, tell me about the woman, the the whole situation. Okay, I'm going to loose that. I'm going to permit it or allow it. To loose means to allow or permit. It's, It's like thumbs up versus thumbs down. You got the picture? So for Jesse, I just loosed him in a sense. That's a weird way to say it. But based on the word of God and everything I've observed about your life, you believe in the Lord Jesus, loosed. Uh, New American Standard has the best translation of this. NIV has a footnote about it. Other, some translations do, some don't. The best way to read verse 19 is, I'll give you the keys To the kingdom of heaven, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, sorry. Whatever you bind on earth will have been bound already. Already isn't in there, but I'm putting it in, in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. In other words, you're just declaring what the word of God says. You're not making it happen. Peter or the apostles or you or I are not making the decision. Okay, I'm going to let Jesse in, but not Harold. It's not up to us. We can just declare with authority because the word of God says it and we believe it. Bad time to take a break, but let's take our two-minute break. There's great snacks back there. And make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. There's two new people here. See if you can find them and introduce yourself. We'll be right back. Those of you on Zoom, stay with me. Two minutes, we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Tuesday Night Bible Study. We are in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 16, and we're talking about binding and loosing. So, not only in the salvation question, but also in questions like, should I try heroin? No, right? Based on the Word of God. Every question is answered by the Word of God, binding or loosing in that way. How many have heard people say that you can bind Satan? I bind you, Satan, in this building. I bind you in the the nation of America, Satan. You are bound. Pretty cool. Not biblical. If it's true that you can bind Satan, and there's nowhere in the Bible where this occurs, God can do it and restrict Satan. Even the Archangel Michael can't bind Satan, and you and I aren't as powerful as he is. Can I bind Satan? If you can, if Tom says, I bind Satan in America and in Washington, D.C., I bind Satan, why is he still on the loose? And if you bound him, how long did it last, like 30 seconds? Um, What's going on here? Do we have that authority? There are several passages, two main ones, but there are several that deal with the idea of spiritual warfare, of Satan attacking a Christian. Those are golden opportunities. If we can bind Satan, that's where they should say it. Paul in Ephesians 6 says, put on the full armor of God and lists all the things. We won't go there now. Why doesn't he say bind Satan? because it's not biblical. James talks about it and says, resist the devil, excuse me, and he will flee from you. When Jesus is tempted by the devil, he quotes scripture, which, can I give you a little hint? Satan hates scripture. He just hates it. It's like screeching nails on a blackboard to Satan. He hates it. He hates to hear people praise God and worship God and worship Jesus. Um, let's see. So can we bind, which means tie up Satan? That's not what the word means to begin with. So it's really not, uh, biblical. Um, in Mark nine, the disciples didn't have the power to be- rebuke Satan. Jesus says only by prayer and fasting, meaning you give it to God. Jude verse nine, there's only one chapter tells the story of Moses dealing with the devil about the body. I'm sorry. Michael, the archangel, dealing with Satan about the body of Moses. And even Michael doesn't dare bring a railing accusation against the devil. He just says, the Lord rebuke you. Can you say that? Yes. Can I? Yes. I'm not willing to go up against Satan. He'll beat me every time if it's me on my own. Put on the full armor of God. Um, we already had that. Paul had a, a satanic messenger, a thorn in the flesh. He calls it a messenger of Satan. If you can rebu- Why doesn't he just say, I rebuke you, Satan? There we go. Problem solved. Let's go have some pizza. He doesn't say that because he asked God three times to heal him, and God says what? No, no, and no. My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is perfected in weakness. Okay. Uh, we already talked about that back to the text. Are you still awake? Say amen. 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 Okay, cool. Zoom people doing good. Once in a while on zoom, there's a few people with the screen on and you see this, which is encouraging for me. Okay. The Psalm and X Bible study. Um, verse 20 odd verse. He's done this before. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. What aren't we supposed to tell everybody? We are now. Why not then? God's timing, it's got to happen on the perfect exact day. Why tell them that yet? You can spread the message, but don't tell them that He's the Messiah. In John 6, He multiplies the loaves and the fishes. Do you remember? And they want to take Him and draft Him and force Him to be king because a guy with this kind of power could. Take care of the Romans in a second. Let's make this guy king. No, you've misunderstood. The reason he's here is to die. All the other stuff is icing on the cake. The the healings, he can't resist healing people when they need it. Casting out demons, uh, calming storms to comfort his apostles. But he's here to die. John 12 talks about that. It's in the note somewhere, but I don't have it in front of me. But they... If they spread the word that he's the Messiah, most Jews do not think, oh, Messiah, suffering servant, Isaiah 53, is going to die on a cross, a bloody sacrificial death. They don't think that. They hear Messiah and think the second coming Messiah, ruling king, judges all evil, rewards the saints, right? raises the dead. That's not what he's here to do the first time. It's what he's coming to do the second coming, the second time. Um, So they're probably shocked to hear, don't tell anybody. Um, He's hinted at his death before this, but he's about to explain it a little more. Watch verse 21. From that time on, meaning more than once, not just then, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, nothing wrong with that, and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Shocker for them. They believe he's the Messiah, meaning you're going to be on a throne in no time. And I think I'll be Secretary of State, don't you think or you might be secretary of the, you could be vice President, John? They're not thinking suffering servant, even though it's in the Old Testament. We'll look at it another time we have before isaiah fifty three psalm twenty two so he tells them, number one, I got to go to Jerusalem. He's been there before with them, but this particular Passover when he goes, he's going to get arrested, he's going to be tried seven trials beaten, whipped, spit on, mocked, and killed, crucified. And he's told them in advance. So you're reading this because you know 2020 hindsight. Why are they so surprised? Because they don't get it yet. They don't have the Holy Spirit. So you got to them, cut them a little slack. He has to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and the teachers of the law. Those three groups... Make up the Sanhedrin. Okay, there was a lot of Pharisees, thousands, and Sadducees, but there was a ruling body. Think of it as a combination Senate, like we have in America, and Supreme Court. And there were seventy-two people, including the high priest, the rulers of Israel. That who is who is who he is who he's saying is going to make him suffer many things, and that he must be do you see it killed a lot of people read the bible and they go i wonder what that could mean it means killed right murdered capital punishment and he must be killed and i think personally i'd like to watch this videotape as well i think they heard go to jerusalem check suffer many things well he's been persecuted before okay check and be killed And on the third day, rise from the dead. I think their brains, when they heard killed, went, and they never even heard and rise from the dead on the third day. Killed? What? It would be like you're supporting a candidate for president, and he says, I'm going to go to Washington, D.C., and they're going to kill me. What? No, no. Watch what happens. But that's the reason, by the way. I said it earlier. I think this is where I have it in my notes. Let's see. If I'm correct on that one. Well, you know what? Let's look at Isaiah 53 because I want you to see that it's predicted. So Old Testament, go back to the Old Testament. Easiest way to find Isaiah is try to find the middle of your whole Bible. And it's roughly Psalms, Proverbs right in there. If it is, that's where you are. Take a right and go to Isaiah. For some people, Isaiah is the middle of the Bible. I want you to go to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Keep in mind, this is written hundreds of years before Jesus shows up. This is called the suffering servant um, passage in the Old Testament. There are others, but this is the heart of the Old Testament in terms of the suffering servant. Jews in synagogues to this day schedule on this Sabbath, we're going to read from Jeremiah on this Saturday, First Samuel, on this Saturday we'll read from Deuteronomy, on this Sabbath we'll read from Genesis. Guess what? They never, ever read Isaiah 53 in a synagogue, ever. It's never on the list for scripture reading. Don't they believe in Isaiah? Oh yeah, they might read Isaiah 40, Isaiah 10. Why? Who has believed our message and to whom of the, has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Already it's hinting that we have a, God has a message and pretty much nobody's going to believe it, almost. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. Here comes the second half of verse 2 is the only verse in the Bible that tells you something about how, what Jesus looked like. You ever notice this? He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Average looking guy. I like that. Verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. You know what that's talking about, don't you? Jesus' persecution. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. We dis- he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely, I want you to notice the synonyms for the word sin. Watch. Surely he, whoever this guy is, it's the Messiah, took up our infirmities. That means sicknesses, but it really means, a, 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 it's a way of saying sin, watch. And carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. Here comes the sin synonyms, watch. But he was pierced. What a interesting Word. You mean like pierced in his hands and his feet? Yes. When was this written? 800 years before Jesus shows up. God took a, a lucky guess and got it right. No. He, he was pierced for our transgressions. That's a synonym for sin. He was crushed for our iniquities, synonym for sin. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray and each of us has turned his own way, but the Lord has laid on him another synonym for sin, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth, led like a lamb to the slaughter. John the Baptist, remember? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is silent, he didn't open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? did he get married and have kids? I think there's something. No. For he was cut off from the land of the living. What does that mean? If you're cut off from the land of the living, what does it mean? You're dead. They killed him. Why was he killed? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was stricken. Assigned a grave with the wicked. He dies with two sinners on crosses, one on each side. Do you remember that? One of them receives Christ before he dies. And with the rich in his death, Joseph of Arimathea says, you can use my tomb. Remember that? Though he had done no violence, it's not like he was guilty of some crime, nor was any deceit in his mouth. He didn't commit uh Perjury. He didn't lie. Here it comes. Verse 10. And God was surprised that he had to die. No. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, that's sacrificial language, he will see his offspring. Look around the room. There's a bunch of his offspring in this room and on Zoom right now. He will see his offspring. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he'll stay dead. Nope. He will see the light of life, resurrection, and be satisfied. By his knowledge, meaning knowing about him, my righteous servant, the suffering servant, Jesus, the Messiah, will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. And it goes on. Why does Jesus come to earth? For healing, for teaching, for... Yes, but the main reason... It's God's will to crush him, for him to die for the sins of the world. Now go back to Matthew, if you will. I'm just trying to read notes. Yeah, we already talked about that. If Jesus doesn't die, how many people get saved? None. Zero. Yes, but what if they try to live a good life? And how many sins can keep you out of of heaven? One. James says if you're guilty of breaking one part of the law, you've broke it all. It's a broken window, whether it's cracked or whether you hit it with a baseball bat and there's no glass left. It's all We've all got broken windows, our record before God. If he doesn't die, nobody gets saved. There's really no point to him coming to earth because all those healings are temporary because they're going to get sick again or they're going to die eventually, and then there'll be judgment. He's got to die, which leads us right into, what did he just say? began to explain he's got to go to Jerusalem, suffer, be killed, and on the third day, be raised to life. Do you see that? It's been hinted at earlier, this is the, cl- the most explicit time he has said it so far. He'll say it again in Matthew. He's letting them know ahead of time. They shouldn't be surprised. They're shocked when it happens. They grieve. Peter denies him, even though he warns him. But aren't we the same way? We know the truth, and then we sin and go, why did I do that? Okay, so Peter's reaction that he's going to be killed and on the third day be raised in life, verse 22, Peter took him aside and said, praise God, you'll die for me. I've never been loved like this. What's the matter with you people? You don't have that in your Bible? Peter took him aside and you got to love Peter. He loves Jesus. He wants to protect his friend. I, I love you guys. I want to protect you guys, but not here. Peter took him aside. That's kind of polite, not in front of everybody. He's going to correct him, the God of the universe. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. I have spoken. Why doesn't he want it to happen? He doesn't understand what we just read. He loves Jesus. He wants him to keep on living. And he didn't hear, went right over his head. He didn't hear, and the third day I will rise again. So Peter, pretty bold, is going to correct the God of of the universe. It's almost laughable. In fact, it is, right? Wait, is this the same Peter that said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God? Yes. And didn't he get an A? Yes. And this is his F. So, after a great confession, a huge mistake. He doesn't get the suffering servant thing. He knows better than Jesus, he thinks. Overconfidence. The way this is written in the Greek, he's starting to talk and Jesus cuts him off, interrupts him. Um, Look at it again, 22. He began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus steps in and says, Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Wow. The word means adversary, but that doesn't water it down in any way. He means Satan. We'll come back to that. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. Do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. I know when I watch this video, Peter's going to be like this. What, right? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the Living God. And then the same guy hears, "Blessed are you, Simon of flesh and blood." And then the same guy hears, "Get behind me, Satan!" What's going on here? He doesn't have the Holy Spirit, first of all. Second of all, it's arrogant. It's overconfidence. You can't blame him. He loves him. He's trying to look out for him. But John twelve twenty seven says, "For this reason I came to this hour to die." Why call him Satan? Can't he just say, Sorry, buddy, you got this one wrong? Who wants to stop the sacrifice for sin? Who wants to stop salvation more than anybody? Satan. I got news for you. This is not the first time this sentiment has come up. What sentiment? No cross. You don't have to, don't die. In Luke 4 and in Matthew 4 is the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness where Satan tempts him. Do you remember? And he says, I'm going to paraphrase, that cross is going to be messy, painful. There's a shortcut. Look, look at all the kingdoms of the world. They're mine, says Satan. And you know what? All you have to do is just get on your knees and worship me i'll give you all the kingdoms it's a shortcut you don't have to die no death was it tempting for jesus i don't think so he knows right he quotes scripture to satan so uh satan means adversary we already said that peter's words agree with satan he's trying to stop god's plans in essence He's doing what all of us do, which is, instead of, I will follow Jesus, he's saying, hey, Jesus, follow me. I got it. I know where we're going here. Wrong. So, Peter, your place is behind me, following, not trying to lead me. I know what I'm saying. Peter is an unwittingly has become a tool of Satan here. Jesus says, don't stand in my way. You're going to be like a stumbling block to people. The rock becomes the stumbling block. By the way, if he's the Pope and he's infallible, he just blew it and can't be the Pope now. He got something wrong. What does Jesus say about why Peter says it? And he's right. You, ha- you don't have in mind the concerns of God. You have merely human concerns. May I tell you what human concerns are? And I'm not putting you down for feeling this way. I feel the same way. We generally like comfort. We generally don't like suffering, pain, persecution, right? I mean, it's just natural. You got to be a masochist to say, no, I like pain. Bring it on. Hammer a nail right here. Go ahead. The default position for humanity is, what's the easy way out of this? Let's face it and admit it. When you're in pain, what do you do? You pray. And what do you say? Please take the pain away. ASAP. Lord, do I need to say it again? ASAP. He might make you wait, right? For his purposes. So, uh, if Peter is right, no death like i said nobody gets saved nobody ever can have the holy spirit in us cuz there's been no payment for sin there's no christianity no church no salvation no hope the sting of sin and death remains forever so did peter do you think learn this lesson no how do you know cuz they come to arrest jesus and peter pulls the sword you remember i'll stop this jesus seriously again okay Um, after a high, this is going to happen again in the next chapter, after a high mountain spiritual experience, which is awesome. He says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Blessed are you. After that, sometimes we get a little puffed up and then a little overconfident and screw up, right? Let our guard down. And Satan says, you don't want your friend to die, do you? Okay, so verse 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, plural. What did he just talk about? Death. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple, they're all listening now. Yeah, I do, me too. Must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me or for my sake, will find it. Okay, go back to 24. Whoever wants to be my disciple, do you want to be his disciple? I do, or you wouldn't be here, right? We all do. So we need to listen to this. And if you like comfort, this ain't it. Whoever wants to be my disciple must, number one, deny themselves, take up their cross, follow me. Three things. Note the order. Not follow me, and then we'll work on the denying yourself and taking up your cross. First, deny yourself. What does that mean? The default position for unsaved human beings, and there's a million human sayings about this, is me first. I got to look out for number one. You ever heard that? If it feels good, do it. Miller beer go for all the gusto you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps I'm a self-made man Frank Sinatra I did it my way that's the default position we admire that sort of thing good for him wrong spiritually That's the default position for mankind. So number one, deny yourself. So does that mean like starve yourself and like make yourself suffer? No, that's taking it to extremes. What it means is the throne of your life, you need to get off and let Jesus get on. And don't share the throne with one cheek on the chair and one off and let Jesus put one cheek there. Get off the throne of your life. Deny yourself. This is harder than it looks. Most of us, when we sin, it's because we struggle with this issue. Denying ourselves. In simple terms, it's this. Jesus says it in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but thy will be done. Not my will. I want A, but I'm reading in the Bible, God wants B. I have to choose B. That's not easy. We're taught to look out for number one. Denying yourself, self-denial. You always hear all these self-help books and seminars about finding yourself. You know what? I found myself in the Bible and I realized, man, I am rotten. (laughs) Seriously, I was like, dang, this is like a mirror. I don't even want to look anymore. I saw my own sin. You find yourself when you lose yourself. You lose your life. That's when you truly find it. And you know what? The people that do this are way happier. The, The selfish default position of mankind will eat you alive because you never get there, you never satisfy yourself. If you want proof, look at very, very, very famous people, very, very rich and powerful people, they're not happy. Okay, human nature wants to indulge self, not deny it. So God can't change you from the inside out until you do step one, deny yourself. It gets easier the more you see how rotten you are in your sin. It's easier. I don't want that old guy back. It means the death of the old man, the old person I used to be, and the new life in Jesus Christ. Why do you mention that now, Joe? Because the next thing is, deny themselves, take up their cross. Now, we Christians, we love the cross, don't we? And we should. We wear necklaces with the cross, and shirts with the cross on it. And look, there's a cross back there. And the cross is a picture of Jesus's love for us. Think of it. It's a vertical line, God to humans, and a horizontal line that he makes the two meet. It's beautiful. But in context, Before the cross happens, when you say take up your cross to a person in the first century, what you're saying is, let me substitute some words. Take up your guillotine. Take up your lethal injection, your firing squad. Take up your capital punishment of yourself. Because if you take up a cross, the person carrying the cross Generally, is the one who is dying. They are publicly taking it up to show the world I rebelled against the government and I'm now submitting to the government to the point of death. Got the picture? A cross was an instrument of capital punishment. There were other instruments of capital punishment, like a sword where they'd cut your head off, or a guillotine, or stoning. But the cross was the worst, it was torturous. It was only for the worst criminals. And I've told you this before. You've seen those, you know, paintings of Jesus on the cross. He's got no shirt on, no pants on, and just a little loincloth. Wrong. They'd crucified people completely naked to make the shame even worse. So when he says, take up your cross, they're going, what did he say? If you want to be my disciple, and you do deny yourself, put God's will ahead of your own. Parenthesis, how can you know God's will if you're not willing to study this book? I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. You're here, so you're studying the book, but you can do it on your own the other six days of the week. Amen. Deny yourself, take up your cross, meaning die to self. The old me like to get drunk, like to use drugs, like to do some other bad stuff I won't mention. That guy has to die. And we struggle with that old person, comes back to haunt us now and then. But by practicing obedience, it makes it that much easier day by day. We already covered that, didn't we? Yes. A person carrying their own cross knows also they can't save themselves. That's the end of their old self. Now, there have been people that have said, um, oh, I know, I understand what that means. Take up your cross. We all have our, you heard this one, cross to bear. For me, it's my sister. She drives me crazy. Okay, I don't have a sister, so don't tell my sister I said I don't have a sister. For me, it's my grandmother. She, oh, she's my, I have asthma. It's my cross to bear. That's not what he's saying. A cross is an instrument of death and the person who carries it is the one dying completely, right? So carry the cross publicly under submission to authority you've previously opposed. That's what's going on here. Um, We already talked about that. Deny and take up aortist tense in the verb. What do you mean? It's a one-time thing. Deny yourself, take up your cross, but the other one, Follow me is um, present imperative, means continuing action day by day, moment by moment, follow him. What does that mean? If I said, everyone, follow me, and I ran out that door, if you obey me, what are you going to do? You got to go out that door. You go where I go. If I say, follow me, and you're following, where did Jesus go? to the cross. What did he do? He died out of love and self-sacrifice for the people he loved. So we ought to be willing to be that sacrificial about our own lives, following Jesus. Same thing though, if you don't read this book, how do you know about Jesus and what to follow and what not to follow, right? Who to follow? Who is the real Jesus? We already talked about that. So let God change you from the inside out, your old self being dead. The new self, I guarantee you, is better than the old you by a mile. I know it is for me. Um, yeah, we already talked about that too. And that. Verse 25, you say we're almost out of time. Yes, I know. Verse 25. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me, will find it. To save your life doesn't mean you're falling off a cliff and you go, I'm just going to let myself go. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about saving, retaining that old life, that old me. If I'm willing to lose all that old identity I had, I will truly find my life. I'll have true fulfillment, joy, meaning to my life, all of the above. Whoever finds his life, um... Whoever wants to save their life is going to lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. The ultimate outworking of verse 25 is martyrdom. Most of the people in this room will never have to deal with that, right? In some countries, we'd be hiding because if the authorities found out we were talking about Jesus and the Bible and they might come in here and Arrest us or do us in. The early church suffered great persecution like that. The ultimate way to lose your life for him is to die for him. Would we be willing to go that far? Don't answer. I'm not going to answer. I think I would. I think God would give me the strength to say I'm not willing to compromise. But it's an interesting question. The way things are going in the U.S. of A., Who knows what could happen, right? If you teach third grade and start talking Jesus, Bible, God, salvation, cross, you probably get in trouble, right? Can't say it. It's a four-letter word, except it's five, Jesus. Okay. Um, Are we out of time? Just about. Let me just see if we can get through one more here. Um, No, let's wait on verse 26. And then next week... It's the transfiguration, which will prove what Peter said was right. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Um, let's pray, and then we'll get out of here. Are the snacks gone back there, Tom? And You can't leave until we eat everything. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time we could be in your word. We love you. I, we can't believe the love Jesus had to be willing to go to the cross and die and suffer before that in our place. It makes us realize we owe him everything. Lord, we have a long way to go, each one of us, some further than others. Help us to be in your word. Help us to live self-sacrificing lives that keep your will at the forefront of our minds and our own wills, which becomes secondary we seek your will over our own. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for loving us. Bless these truths. May they change the way we see the world and the way we live. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Make sure you say hello to to someone you don't know that's here. They're waiting to see. Those of you on Zoom, thanks for being here. See you next time.